Hi everyone, this is Criterion Channel Surfing, and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. Apologies for getting these October episodes out so late in the month. Work obligations have had me putting in 12-hour days from home again, leaving little time, energy, or bandwidth for editing in my off hours. So the episode you're about to hear today is more lightly edited than usual. You'll hear all of our ums and uhs, our stammers and repetitions. But I'm really excited about all of the episodes I'm putting together from my October recording sessions. I have some really great guests, and the conversations were incredible. I hope you enjoyed listening half as much as I enjoyed speaking with John, Michael, Alana, and David. So, thanks for listening, everyone. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. John Lobinger of the Film Baby Film Podcast joins me today to talk about the return of art house horror, terrifying films that are only available on the Criterion channel. But first, I'll check in with Alana Levin, host of Graphic Policy Radio and frequent contributor to Wrong Reel, to uncover some hidden gems in the new 70s horror bundle. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out videos by Daisuke Beppu. In this series of warm and inviting videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts and reflections on the Criterion Collection, home media, and the films he loves. Find his videos on YouTube and search for Daisuke Beppu. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Alana Levin, host of Graphic Policy Radio and contributor to Wrong Reel. She's here to join me for a conversation on Criterion's new 70s horror bundle. Alana, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a great excuse to uh, get to watch some movies that have been really fabulous. Um, one of them, I, I think as a result, a result of this particular uh, podcast opportunity, I have watched what is my favorite movie that I've seen this year. So oh, that's exciting. That's really, really yeah. cool. Well, for our listeners uh, who aren't familiar with your work, would you mind just giving me a little background on your what got you into film and got you into talking about and engaging with film and podcasting and maybe a little bit about uh, graphic policy radio and the work you do there as well? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, I grew up uh, during the beginning of the home VCR mm, era, mm -hmm. and um, I grew up watching the movies that my parents uh, would rent and suggested for us to watch. So I very much grew up watching films from the 60s and 70s. Uh, I feel like I watched more of the Beatles movies and mm. Mel Brooks than like anybody of my generation under normal <laughs> circumstances may have encountered. And growing up on, you know, Beatles films, music, growing up on Richard Lester films. So like, you know, liking the sort of films that might find their way onto the Criteria channel is not uh, very surprising mm. for me. Um, but of course, because teenagers and such are also going to be, you know, rebels. I also, of course, have a deep and abiding love for trash cinema as well. <laughs> and all the things that my parents thought was bad. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I definitely grew up in a household watching like real film and then kind of 
found my way into other genres and um, trash cinema and stuff like that later on, as well as getting into comics. Um, and of mm. course, if you're going to be spending your childhood thinking and talking about real, real film, um, <laughs> there's a good chance that if you begin reading comic books, you're going to feel the need to explain why these are also legitimate art to people. And um, I think it probably isn't too surprising that I ended up having a comics podcast about the intersection of comics and politics, because, mm. you know, all the media that we consume is political and mm -hmm. we we watch it and we view it through the lens of the, the world as we see it and other through the culture and society that creates it so graphic policy you know i interview comics comics authors i interview comics artists and i have roundtables with not just comics critics but also folks who do political work um talking about how the uh the art that they make and the art that they love you know particularly in the comics um relates to the world at large and uh so obviously, you know, if you if you're someone who likes comic books, you should definitely listen to the show. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you're someone who doesn't read comics, we do do things like have, you know, in-depth roundtables about about generally speaking nerd films related to mm. comic book superheroes when they came out. But I'm not predominantly a superhero movie fan, even like I, you know, I I, I think superhero comics is the, the best medium for for superhero stories, and and film is kind of for other things in some ways for me. So, oh, that's really great, and I, and I love that conversation point that that all of the art we consume is political by nature and that the i love that that idea that 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 as we we look at it and view it uh, kind of trying to dissect it and to to examine what are the the things that this work of art is trying to say i think that that sounds like a really uh really fruitful and really um really engaging and really uh exciting discussion point to have well, thank you. And I, you know, it is sort of how I got into to horror movies um, mm. in a way. When you invited me on and you sort of brought up that I would be talking a little bit about my origins with horror film, it, I sort of had this, you know, realization that I don't actually like being scared. What I like about mm. horror movies is either the aesthetics yeah. or the the subject matter and the, the the topics that really are come to light in horror films. Yeah. Um, and then that was really brought in, brought me into it in the first place. Um, and so the 70s, the 70s horror bunch is like right in the Venn diagram of things I love <laughs> because it has this wonderful, so many wonderful 1970s aesthetics that I'm just predisposed to be attracted to, um, as well as there being a lot of really interesting political and especially, wow, lots of feminist subtext throughout these movies. And, uh, but, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to like, the, like the nineties are kind of like a dead zone for me when it comes to horror. I don't really mm. watch that sort of stuff. I, there, there are eighties slasher films that I do like, but there's lots of slasher stuff that I just can't watch. But, uh, I, I, I was trying to remember the very first horror film I saw was a uh, summer camp nightmare. And I was pretty young. I think I must have been in like fifth grade or something. And my, my primary interest was, I was obviously I'm at a sleepover party because that's where you get exposed to movies that your parents <laughs> are like not going to think yes. are great. I was like, I think there might be boobs in this. So I'm going to make myself watch this movie that is definitely too scary for me because there might be boobs. And there weren't <laughs> even boobs. So I just was like, I'm not really interested in this. But I, yeah. I, I have a hard time putting a finger on the first horror film I saw that I really liked, but it might have been Rosemary's Baby, to be honest, mm. which mm -hmm. I think I was probably saw in high school. So again, you know, this this time period, I think, is producing some of the really some of the most interesting horror film. Yeah. And and, you know, I do I do think this bundle is really interesting because I do think there are some 
some really some really interesting shifts in the way that uh, genre films were being used to explore political issues and sociological issues. And uh, uh, I think this particular bundle has some really, really interesting work in it. And, uh, you know, I feel like horror is so often such a, the the exploitation genres can be so misogynistic that uh, it's really nice to have some stuff in here that does have the feminist overtones. Well, and it's funny to me because like people think about you know, De Palma's work as being sexist. And I'm sure he has movies that are. I have mm-hmm. not seen them because I tend to kind of be able to pre-screen things pretty well for myself. But I certainly think Sisters is quite feminist. I mean, yeah. it's a horror movie about two women who are trapped in systems that are set up to make them fail and to exploit them, you know? Yeah. And I don't mean the two twins. I mean, the journalist, mm-hmm. you know, who, whose journalism gets treated as being a hobby, who gets talked down to by the police and all that. And then as well as, you know, uh, Margot Kidder's, uh, you know, character and her twin, um, you know, they're they're both in there. And it's very much like showing all of these gross men preying on them and treating them poorly. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm sure that there's stuff he's made that is really messed up, but this ain't it. This is actually pretty, (laughs) this is actually pretty feminist horror movie. Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. What are some of the things that you look for when you are trying to find, um, horror films what are some of the the things that you know as you said you try to pre-screen some of the the films that you're you're looking for what are what are some of the things that that draw you to see a film and what are some of the things that you just kind of know that you know this horror film isn't for you oh that's interesting I mean I think you there's a sort of cruelty that becomes Mm. more fashionable starting in the 90s and um you know you get like the saw kind of stuff is just I think is bad. I don't want to see that. Um, And I think like, you know, there's lots of 80s horror that I like, but it's very much like horror comedy and it leans towards a lot of campiness. And you can sort of, I mean, that's the great thing about these old VHS boxes. You can like, you're looking at the box, you're looking at the scenes, you're looking at the pictures from the back and you're like, yeah, is this, is this camp or is this, is this violent? Is this, and then the seventies films, so many of them, what I love is you have these beautiful, these wonderful costumes. Like when they try to do period outfits versus when they're not even trying to do period outfits. Um, Dracula AD was 1972 was a lot of fun in part because the costumes, which, you know, it takes place in 1972, like the costumes are great. Like they actually have a good handle of 1972 fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the band playing the house party, like they're mediocre, they're journeymen, but like they sound correct, you know? And the, the 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 slang is actually like un, is accurate, but understated enough to not sound like an over the top cartoon, as if it was written by Stan Lee or something. Yeah, there's lots of great moments. I, I have to I have to do a shout out for um, Christopher Neem's performance as Alucard uh, in that movie is a real highlight because he he has he's taking his role seriously. Mm. Like this is, you know, a campy horror movie, but he's taking his role seriously. And he reminds me of Christopher Lee a lot, who's, you know, the other big star in that movie and how he really brings gravitas to the performance mm. that I think makes it a lot more fun actually than it would be if he was like, eh, this is stupid and I'm going to be campy about it. So, you know, like, I, I, I think that there's a lot of really, really fun and interesting art direction and then soundtracking are coming. Mm. I mean, you're not going to be able to tell that by looking at the box, but, <laughs> but I think that <laughs> movies that have a lot of thought and thoughtfulness in the soundtrack, I mean, 
ganja and Hess, which folks like, you know, prior to Criterion Collection, I don't know how you would get to watch that movie. I got to see it at Metrograph Theater when it was showing mm -hmm. for like two days or something. It was really yeah. brief. Uh, you know, that has a legendary, really interesting creative soundtrack with gospel music influences and African music influences and experimental and it's really going on. And then, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, which is, you know, has been for a, for a long time has been The Wicker Man. Yeah. And for me, that movie, the entire aesthetic of the movie being so different than most horror films it's very much it's a springtime horror movie it's a daytime horror movie mm -hmm. everything is flowers the music is folk music mm -hmm. and that is so wonderful i mean i i actually invented a a holiday for the excuse of um making my friends all watch wicker man <laughs> which is called easter zombie and um right after easter we joined to celebrate easter zombie in which one watches the wicker man uh, you can dye Easter eggs, D-I-E. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, we eat the rest of the leftover Easter candy to prevent the zombies from returning and eating our brains. You know, various themes of the dead rising and coming back yeah. and Easter, yeah. it's all right there. Um, but, you know, The Wicker Man is like, it's such a beautiful movie. The mm -hmm. And the soundtrack by Paul Giovanni is stunning. Um, I mean, the other big gateway for me into horror is I, you know, at some point in high school, I really got into goth rock. This is back in the nineties. And, you know, I, I actually, I didn't see, I didn't see, um, I didn't see Wicker Man until I was an adult, but like there've been goth bands covering Willow's song from Wicker Man, despite mm -hmm. the fact that this is very much not a gothic, very much a, a folk music soundtrack, but um, those sort of things have some interesting uh, juxtapositions and, and horror films. I mean, you have so much going on where like, who is the real monster? Is it the monster? Is it the villagers? Mm -hmm. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, all of these monstrous women who are actually kind of the heroes and that's all going to be pretty compelling to folks who like to, you know, support the outsiders and, and relate to those kinds of stories. Yeah. I really, I like that. Uh, you know, I think some of the most, compelling horror films to me are the ones in which the monster is actually kind of a misunderstood or uh is is less less a rampaging beast but is is more is more relatable to us uh, mm -hmm. and i i find those those to be really compelling you know when you first reached out to me and were interested in talking about some of these titles you mentioned the wicker man as being one of your favorite films uh, of all time and uh, i'm just curious uh, what what is it about that film in particular that really draws you into it and um, what is it that has had the stain power for you over the years well, other than the music and the art direction, and again, the art direction on this movie is excellent. And I think that's an incredibly important thing for me as to whether or not I'm gonna like a movie period. Um, it has so many interesting themes that it pulls out, sacrifice and regicide and the mythology of like, you know, from a lot of British folklore and folk tales, the idea of king for a day and the transubstantiation of both the Christian and the very much non-Christian kind. You know, it, it, it's drawing on Hamer horror, but it's also very much an indie film in a lot of ways, you know, lots of hippie era stuff. Um, you know, certainly a lot of what is understood by folks today as being pagan or Wiccan religion is actually stuff that was invented by the Victorians and that the hippie era um, kind of reinvented it. And so uh, a lot of the 
sort of pagan traditions that you sort of see in a movie like this is a combination of like, yes, some actual Druid stuff, but lots of this is invented like in the, by the Victorians and stuff like um, uh, Sir George Frazier, Golden Bough and stuff like that. And, um, and the, the acting and the performances on it are, are really great. I mean, Christopher Lee is amazing. Our like three awesome blonde ladies are just like, Britt Eklund and I mean and Ingrid Pitt who we also have in The Vampire Lovers was so good what interesting mm. woman too really great performances and like the mystery of the, the central mystery of the Wicker Man like what happened to Rowan Morrison it in you know this is something that you know influenced uh, Twin Peaks later on mm -hmm. I think and just really questioning like are the values of you know modern Christian culture that he's a, that, that, that the representative of the law sergeant howe is espousing like who here's crazy and like who here actually has figured out a system that works for people is I, you know I, I don't i want to avoid spoilers but you know also there's some just shocking stunning amazing visual scenes but then you have those touches like people wearing the animal masks marching in the procession playing instruments and it's just so subtly creepy and they're all backlit and it beats in the sun is out and it's like beautiful and it's so disconcerting it's so eerie you know and like i would run around and like look up to see like okay like this guy who's wearing the horse ship costume like was that drawing for something maybe it actually is something that was worn by mummers and mummers day parades like there's so many different you know the the hand of glory and like what does that signify like there's so much symbolism you can really go in deep and looking at it and uh you know i mean i think it's a question of like are you going to view this as being a horror film or sort of more of a, a cultural study in some ways yeah i watched it i think for the first time last year and was really really drawn in and uh, really impressed by the the way the film kind of slowly takes you through this journey in in beginning to be put off by Edward Woodward's character's uh, self-righteousness mm -hmm. by his um, you know he he starts off as this this character that you you know you want to see him succeed in his quest to find the missing child but his his self-righteous kind of pomposity becomes so off-putting uh and yet you still also it, there are just so many layers and uh i i found it really really compelling uh and it's a really mesmerizing film that uh, uh i found really compelling and you know i do have to say uh, i was really really upset no one told me it was a musical and so uh, <laughs> i finally watched it and i said if people told me this was a musical i would have been watching this so much sooner than i did <laughs> well the soundtrack is available on spotify so that's great yeah yeah and one of the, my favorite things about wicker man is that no one has ever remade it yeah yeah <laughs> it's exactly that that was it nobody tried to follow it up there's no sequels you know never was remade yeah. yes, actually yes. i have a question for you do you yeah. think lord summer isle has pulled off schemes like this before mm. uh you know i it strikes me that this seems to be something that happens every generation or so so i would mm. say it, it it strikes me that this must have happened before yeah yeah I think it's I think it's an open question, but I'm curious if folks think about it. Yeah. 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 
but I think you have to have someone as again, so someone as obviously self-righteous as our our favorite police officer to make that yeah. type of thing work. Yeah. But like you said, there are some really intriguing things. And I think the more you watch a film like this, the more its mysteries open themselves up to you. Because I do think that there are some really, there are questions is, you know, and, and I think that the conversation with Lord Summerisle, it does allow for this, this discussion of what, what is faith? What is, um, what is the system of beliefs that we have? And, um, does it matter if a system of belief is real or not, as long as a people believe it? And um, yeah, I, I I think there's there's a lot there's a lot going on in this film that I'm sure that as you have watched it uh, multiple times that I'm sure you continue to uncover layers as you oh yeah uh, as you keep watching it yeah um and uh, if folks want to hear me talk about it at length uh, that was one of my episodes I did of Wrong Real is. Uh, wicker was one of the wicker man episodes they've done yeah that's great i'll uh i'll have a link to that in our show notes uh because i do think that it's a film that does deserve uh, a deep dive and it's it definitely is um is is deserving of its cult status uh for people yeah well you know i know that you have been watching a lot of these films and have been uh, uncovering uh, some some gems here so what are some of the films that you would recommend people check out as they're looking for some spooky films to catch as in the lead up to Halloween so you know I want to thank you again for for pitching this because I don't think I would have seen season of the witch otherwise and season mm. of the witch is like the best film I've seen this year oh wow. um you know it's George Romero 1972 it went through a number of different cuts that were all pretty brutal I mean one mm. of them apparently they had edited porn into it which is like crazy because it's sort of like uh, that would be awkward, actually. Uh, but um, but it's so I'm glad that, you know, Criterion actually has a version of this that is hopefully, you know, closer to what Romero mm -hmm. had wanted to be able to to put out on the screen. Um, it is really amazing art direction, as I said, uh, especially <laughs> costumes. God, so many wonderful 70s outfits. Um, mm -hmm. But what what I really love Season of the Witch is all about um what uh, author, feminist author Betty Friedan called um, the problem that has no name, which was how she referred to the widespread unhappiness of women in the 50s and early 60s. Mm. So it opens with a wealthy housewife and her life is devoid of meeting. And she's also being like, a, you know, abused in subtle ways by her husband and her, her, her daughter is basically grown up now and doesn't really need her. And so, you know, she is trying to figure out how she can make her life less empty and shitty and also like create a place of freedom for herself in some ways. And of course she turns to witchcraft, which is a thing that really happened for a lot of folks actually. Mm. And the, the movie has obviously it has, it has one song by Donovan. Can't go wrong with that. Yeah. You know, I, obviously I love me a psychedelic nightgown, but like this has these wonderful dream sequences that are all really rich with symbolism and literally feel like, it's like an it's got like experimental film segments cooked in between sort of a disaffected housewife Douglas Sirk B movie, I guess. Uh, but like one of the dream sequences, I'm watching this, I'm like, this reminds me of Meshes of the Afternoon by Maya Darren, <laughs> you know, which is <laughs> not necessarily what I would have, I mean, Romero obviously is like one of, you know, a truly brilliant filmmaker, but that's not necessarily a connection I would have made with one of mm -hmm. his, with his work per se. 
you know, and he really understands like, this is a super feminist movie. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have, if you're someone who has a hard time watching horror movies that have a lot of violence and cruelty, I think this is a good film for you because mm. it's not very violent. It has a lot of suspense in it, but there's no, there's no body horror. There's no like hardcore violence. There's no sadism. There's no, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah, think this is a yeah. very accessible movie. It handles feminism really powerfully. And I just, I had such a good time watching it. One of the things I got a kick out of is how like loathsome the boyfriend is because hmm. it would be so easy to have like cast somebody handsome and compelling in that role and they yeah. didn't. And it's kind of like all the more perfect for it. Hmm. Oh, that sounds great. This is one that has, uh, I found really intriguing, uh, but haven't had a chance to dive into yet. And uh, I think this one sounds like a really great, a great film to watch in the next couple of weeks. Um, you will yeah. be pleased. And Vampire, The Vampire Lovers, uh, which is based on one of the earliest vampire books, which is called Carmilla, which was about lesbian vampires. Because yes, people have been writing about lesbian vampires for hundreds of years. Um, vampire Lovers is a lot of fun. It has wonderful performance from Ingrid Pitt. It's really sexy. Uh, they have their, this is one of the ones where they're doing a fun job of combining like quote unquote period costuming with like, mm. this was made in 1970s folks um, yeah. stuff happening. Um, you know, Peter Cushing and it's a hammer horror movie. So if you're, if you like hammer horror movies, this is, this is one of them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very campy, but uh, and entertaining, but also suspenseful. Um, I think they actually do a pretty good job of of building up the suspense and tension around that climax. And Ingrid Pitt is just so like vamping and like lesbian. It's great. In 1970, no less, right? That's really cool. That's it's always fun to find those those ways that uh, filmmakers were starting to push the boundaries of what was considered acceptable at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ganja and Hess is like high cinema. So if, you, if you're yeah. someone who's like horror movies are, you know, cheesy and like, screw that, like Ganja and Hess is like, you can show that to your film snob friends and they will be like, yes, I stroke my chin. This is smart. Um, <laughs> and, and like I said, Ganja and Hess is impossible to find. So I think you guys have done an amazing service in making this film available. It's, you know, it's an, an art, it's a, an artsy indie black vampire movie about an anthropologist and it's, you know, 1973 and it's very psychological and has a lot of interiority and it's definitely like, it's unclear what he's actually experiencing versus what might be hallucination and that's fine. And it's very lyrical. It's not very like, this is not like some Hitchcocky and like point by point kind of a, of a story, but it's a really beautiful, really interesting movie. Mm, yeah. I'm yeah. sad he didn't get to make that many more, but you know, know. isn't that the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited that they've, they've got his, his other film that has just been restored up as well. So I'm, I'm really eager to dig into that bundle uh, before those films leave the channel as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else that really stands out to you or is there anything that you uh, saw that you would recommend people stay away from maybe? No, I thought everything was good. I mean, I, you know, I, Dracula AD 1972 has a bit of a weak climax, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah, no, all the all of the movies that I saw, um, I really liked. I actually finally saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is ridiculous. Mm. I hadn't seen it till then. Yeah. You know, really excellent performances in that movie. And um, 
you know, I, I, I love a story that's centered around public, public health officials and like, you know, people like scientists trying to take care of folks. Um, yeah. You know, one thing I, I, I stayed away from, there was a number of movies on the list that I would want to see, but I knew I couldn't handle right now. Like I can't handle zombie movies right now. Yeah. Um, anything about contagions and stuff like that. I mean, I was even worried about whether or not I could handle body snatchers, but that, mm -hmm. that ended, it was borderline, but I think it, I did it okay. But, you know, I, I would, I wanted to see the crazies because I think Romero is a genius, but yeah. I was like, you know what, I can't. I can't see something that's going to be too on the zombie nose right now with the current state of the world. Yeah. My wife and I were talking about the fact that I was watching a, uh, an episode of a zombie show and I was like, yeah, this feels a little too, too prescient right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would say, you know, this, the, 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 the ones I listed, I think are, you know, COVID trauma safe, so to speak. That's good. Yeah. And I do think that, that, I mean, that is, that is one of the, the issues right now is that, you know, we, we do enjoy our horror right now, but we are still in the middle of a pandemic and not all of the titles here are necessarily films that we're going to want to catch in the middle of that trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for kind of giving us a, a few highlights of this, this bundle. And I do think that a lot of these are, are films that people might overlook because, you have films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, you know, some, uh, some big, big names in the, the horror pantheon uh, films by Cronenberg and things. And, and I really love that you have highlighted some films that people just might tend to overlook in their, their desire to catch big names on the channel this, uh, this Halloween. Mm. So thanks for that, that guide into mm -hmm. some, some overlooked corners of this bundle. Thank you. I, uh, I'm, I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but not one, because I just, one is going to be too upsetting for me, even though it's clearly a brilliant film. I like, yeah. I know my limits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I have not seen it yet either. And that's one of those ones that I'm, I keep going, do I, is this a, is this a, a line that I want to, to cross? I, I know this is a film that you can't unsee. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, if folks want to catch up, catch up with me, you know, Graphic Policy Radio, and then I'm on Twitter a little bit too much, uh, E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn. That's at Elana underscore Brooklyn is the uh, best place to keep up with me. Great. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as John and I discuss art house horror films that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection and Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at therobertaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with John Lobinger of the Film Baby Film Podcast, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. 
Now, because the Criterion channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. Uh, It's October, so of course that means that it is time to talk about horror films. And I am so excited to have John back Uh, once again, to talk about horror films in the Criterion Channel's library. And if you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes here. Uh, John, um, when I first approached you to uh, jump on for a uh, follow-up to our Art House Horror conversation last year... uh, you were really eager. And then we realized that we had talked about most of the art house horror films already (laughs) (laughs) that their bench isn't all that deep. And we started digging into some adjacent films and maybe some uh, films that we could maybe classify as horror as well. But, uh, how was the process of trying to find some other art house horror films in their their streaming library for you? Well, yeah. Well, look, I, you know, I did what anybody does when they want to find out some answers about, um, the Criterion channel, which is I went to Michael Hutchins' letterbox page. And, uh, you know, I looked up the permanent streaming-only titles and filtered on horror. And, yeah, the first reaction is there isn't a whole lot here. We've already discussed several of them um, uh, in our in our first episode of this. So, But I found a couple that I jumped into, and I have to tell you, very rewarding and uh, mm. well worth exploring. Um you know, the first movie that I watched, uh, I think I would qualify as a horror film, although mm-hmm. it's uh, it's interesting in the annals of horror films just in terms of the, the layers that it brings to it. Uh, and that movie yeah. is Under the Blossoming Cherry Trees by Masahiro Shinoda, a 1975 film. So Shinoda is a director that you and I actually have already done. We did a podcast episode on Criterion Reflections talking about oh, yeah. Shinoda's yeah. Silence. And this is an interesting movie that some people have actually grouped into a trilogy with this film and uh, a, another another film about the history of Japan that Shinoda did around this time. And has some really interesting uh, tonal aspects that it shares with silence. It's uh, I will say it is a fairly gruesome horror film for its hmm. time uh, and the fact that it kind of feels like a classical Japanese film. Um, and it took me a while as well to really like get a grip on what was happening. Some of the things felt so disjointed. I was wondering if things were getting lost in translation or, you know, what was going on. And the description on the Criterion channel definitely didn't help because it is fairly hilariously inept in terms of giving (laughs) you a sense of what this film is really about. But the point I want to make is I'm actually really happy because, and this makes it hard to talk about this film the surprise of what was actually going on in the film and what the discussion Shinoda wanted to have uh, with the viewer, when I realized Mm. what was going on, the surprise of it was half of the joy. Um, Mm. Although to to use the word joy connected to this film is a little bizarre because it is nihilistic. We talked... I'm not going to go too much into the, the themes or the specifics of this film, but as we talked about in in silence i think this period of uh shinoda's filmography he's having a dialogue almost with himself asking you know which is worse 
isolationism, nationalism, like local authoritarianism and tyranny and like the Mm -hmm. cruelty of the individual, not just some political thing, but like the cruelty that it uh, uh, inflicts on the individual versus the, the terror and the cruelty of imperialism. And sort of, mm-hmm. it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario, um, and that certainly comes into play in this film, I think. And but again, with all horror films, and I'll talk about this over and over, I love horror films that bring layers, that bring an into intellectual aspect to it. But on a visceral level, this film is interesting. It's foreboding. It, it's you know another film that has like a a real gothic element to it, um, and it's it's bizarre and creepy and beautiful you know another another one of these films where the things that go on are so horrific but the way that the film is made is just so beautiful um i'm a big fan of this movie uh Hmm. i cannot recommend it highly enough i've hope i i never want to be abstract when i discuss a movie but i also want to avoid ruining and spoiling the things that i love about the movie so much that i want i want the other people that watch the movie uh, to experience so I won't say much more than that you know I'm not Will Remmers I'm not uh, allergic <laughs> to spoilers the way that some people are but this is a movie where I think many of the surprises really enrich the experience so highly yeah. recommend there's so many great movies on the channel this is one of them Under the Blossoming Cherry Trees by Masahiro Shinoda oh that sounds really really great I you know we have so many so many great films uh, from Japan on the channel and in the permanent collection. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I think of all of the Shinoda or all of the uh, Kenoshita films, uh, you know, we have, you know, it feels like 200 Sh- uh, Kenoshita films on the channel. Hmm. I, th- I forget how much of Shinoda's filmography we also have there. Yes. And uh, I hadn't realized that this was also a Shinoda film. So yeah, that, that sounds like a really great, a great film to to look at, especially after having watched and rewatched Silence and talked about it with you and David and Robert. And uh, I'll be really curious to uh, to explore it and to uh, to dive into the nihilism because you know every once in a while you need to empty your heart of all hope. This is this is October in America, so yes, that's, that's right. accurate. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, the first film that I'm going to talk about is Spirits of the Dead, which is an omnibus film that was has segments that were directed by uh, Federico Fellini, Louis Mal, and Roger Vadim from 1968. Um, you, in our last episode, talked about the Federico Fellini segment, which is included... Uh, as a standalone segment on the channel and will be included in the essential Fellini box set that will be coming out in November. Um, and, uh, you know, I am a sucker for omnibus films. I really enjoy the, uh, the ways that uh, we get a chance to see great filmmakers try their hand at short films. Uh, you know, I think that, some filmmakers are better than others at crafting these short films. I think you you get the sense that it's a really different skill set to craft something in 20 to 40 minutes than it is to craft an entire feature film. Uh, You have to be more economical in your storytelling. You have to really um, 
figure out the pacing. You have to figure out how you're going to tell your story in a way that gets you everywhere you need to go um, in just such a shorter period of time. And uh, some filmmakers are really great at it. Some filmmakers aren't. This one is, uh, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, three cases of murder, which uh, I covered in our noir episode a few months ago. And uh, this is one that I really enjoyed. Not all of the segments are perfect, uh, but I did enjoy all three segments. Uh, I think that the Fellini segment, uh, which is Toby Dammit, is by far the most wildly inventive. And uh, I think that it is uh, the most visually inventive of all of the, the three stories. And I can see why it's the one that is often broken out more and is shown as its own standalone piece. Um, it is very much Fellini's signature has his, his signature over it, uh, through and through. Um, but I do think they're all compelling tales. This is, uh, these are three adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories. And I think they all have their own compelling, uh, hooks on them. Uh, Roger Vadim's segment is the one that opens it. It's called, I'm going to butcher the name of this, but that's okay. Uh, Metzengerstein. Uh, it's the story of this sadistic noblewoman who, um, falls in love with, uh, a man near her and she ends up orchestrating his death and then uh, begins to believe that his spirit is inhabiting a black stallion and uh, begins to become obsessed with the stallion. And uh, uh, it features Jane Fonda as this noble woman. And it's a, a really kind of fun, creepy, bizarre uh, film that has some very... Uh, Sadian overtones to it, but uh, at the same time, the the narration for the film is a little heavy-handed um, and a little too. It it leads you through the story a little too much, but the the visuals are are compelling. Again, I think uh, Jane Fonda is great in it. It's a, a fun fun little piece. Um, I really liked the Louis Mal segment, William Wilson. I think it's the most narratively compelling segment of the three segments. Uh, I think that uh, it uh, features uh, Alain Delon as a, a really brutal man who encounters his double and uh, is pursued by him over the course of his life and uh, ends up um, trying to kill him. And, uh, it's a very, very, uh, kind of chilling and, uh, uh, twisted, twisted little story that is, uh, it's very fun and, uh, feels, uh, very, very poish. I think it feels the most poish out of the three. And, uh, I think Toby Dammit is definitely, um, the, again, like I said, the, the most inventive, I think. It goes a little off the rails, uh, but Terrence Stamp in it is uh, really, really fantastic. And uh, as an actor, as an alcoholic actor who is uh, who's there to make a film and gets lost at the end. I mean, it's just it's 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 crazy. It's bizarre. It's 
It's very Fellini, uh, very late, late period Fellini. It's fun. And uh, yeah, I, I fully enjoyed all, all three of these. So I think that it's a, it's a really, really, it's really well worth your time to watch the full set of films. I think that, uh, I believe that the, the version of Toby Dammit that's up uh, as a solo version has been restored. Spirits of the Dead itself has not been restored, though, and you can see that it definitely is uh, in need of some some loving care, and the the elements are a little a little uh, beaten up, but um, but I still think it's worth it's worth checking out. It's worth checking out the other two stories, um, especially if you're looking for something uh, a little a little macabre and a little on the creepy side. I love doppelganger stories, and I'm not sure that anybody has really fully like exploited the doppelganger. I mean, maybe invasion of yeah. the body snatchers, but I still think I feel like that is one of the one of the themes or tropes or metaphors or whatever that there still is a perfect version of that story that's out there. Yeah, particularly I think for horror uses, and I don't think it's I don't think it's been done yet. So I'm really excited to see William Wilson for sure. Toby Dammit, I you know, I don't know that I it totally blew me away or that I totally loved it when I watched mm-hmm. it, but I still think of that ending on probably once every month or once every other month. That that the visuals from that from that section have stuck with me a year later. Yeah. It's striking, right? I mean, I think that Fellini for whatever whatever narrative flaws there are in that film the visuals are just so compelling i think of i think of the scene where he's in the airport and the the ball is falling down the stairs and i mean there are just so many incredible images in that film that and then the 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 final car ride is uh is really really haunting yeah what's the second film that you're going to want to talk about today so Josh, I want to go back to something that you started off with, which was, um, you know, to some extent, Criterion's permanent streaming only horror collection. It's you know not it's not one of the deepest pockets that they have on the on the streaming channel. However, both with the streaming channel and with the physical collection, I think it's pretty clear that Criterion's strength when it comes to the horror genre or horror adjacent, mm. however you want to call it. I think their strength is the Japanese ghost story. This is a genre that I definitely got introduced to from the Criterion Collection. You know, I'm thinking about movies like Kwaidon, Ugetsu, uh, Jigoku, Onibaba, many, many more. Um, And then obviously some of the more modern iterations as well. You know, um, The Ring and Ringu. Like, you can't... Those are one of the archetypal horror films and so exploring the permanent streaming only catalog i just sort of randomly picked the ghost of yatsoya not knowing what i was getting into but you know knowing that i was going to watch a japanese ghost story probably yeah um it's right there in the title but i didn't realize that i was watching like the japanese <laughs> ghost story yeah and yeah. maybe because i know we talked there have been many versions of this film this story i mean even just like uh, there have been so many movies that have been inspired by it including some of the movies we just named but literally taking the specific story i think there have been 
Wikipedia lists like 30 adaptations of this story. And I know that you, yeah. we, including one other two part adaptation that I think you addressed, that you mentioned last year when we had this discussion. Yeah. And so that, I don't think it really, it really jumped out at me that I was watching. You know, this is another example we were just talking about, you know, in an earlier segment, an early recording, we were talking about Black Christmas. And how, for me, that was a missing link film where it really filled in and it helped me explain and helped me understand where a lot of the things that I loved about many of the horror movies I'd seen that came after, where all that stuff came from. This is another one of those films. This is a missing link Mm -hmm. film where um, once I watched it, I realized, like, oh, that's where this this story comes from. And so The Ghost of Yatsoya, it's based off of... um, a kabuki theater play which was written in the 1800s which in turn was based on two separate true crimes and like i said it's hugely influential contemporary japanese horror at least 30 different times this film has been remade and the idea is the vengeful wife or the vengeful lover ghost comes back to haunt the man who wronged her and this is such mm-hmm. an interesting story, you know, uh, on so many different levels and sort of what it, you know, and it's been used and focused on in so many different elements, whether it's the um, thinking about the militarism of Japan uh, during World War II and before that. And I know that different versions of the story have really sort of addressed that issue. It addresses the relationship between men and women. Um, and just like how we treat the people that are closest to us. Um, but overall, uh, this film just has some really great visuals that are terrifying. And I think this version in particular is the version that inspires many of the more recent iterations. You know, there is just something horrifying about seeing a woman with wet hair and you can't see her face. And it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, very iconic images in this film. And another thing that I noticed from, one of the things that I noticed happens a lot in these Japanese ghost films are they're just beautiful. Uh, you know, they have a lot of um, mm. the painted backgrounds that are, you know, the eye popping colors and just really well constructed. And yeah, this is a movie. This is a movie that I really loved. It surprised me. And then when I actually started, when I, you know, when it hit me like, oh man, I'm really seeing this story over and over again and looking into a little bit more and realizing that. This sto- this version of the story in particular is so influential into the stuff that I've seen, and then uh, you know the the ob- the observation is that this version, the 1959 Ghost of Yotsuya by Nakagawa, a lot of people consider mm-hmm. this the best iteration um, of what is really just a core horror uh, genre or or trope or however you want to say it, um, Japan. Um, but really just, you know, all over the world. And so uh, it's like a hidden gem in the Criterion Channel collection. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw the uh, the version that was directed by Kenoshida, and we talked about that last year. And that one was definitely more grounded in the social realism of Kenoshida. And uh, you you don't know whether the ghost is real or whether the ghost is a figment of the 
the the killer's imagination or his a figment of his guilt uh and uh, so yeah it's a it's really interesting the different angles that different filmmakers take on this and so this one sounds really fascinating and definitely sounds like it's more geared towards the horror but also just sounds so pivotal and so important when we think about the the iconography and the imagery that we now associate with horror and especially with japanese horror what was it so what's your second film josh my second film is i'm going to stretch stretch the definition of horror just a (laughs) tiny bit here uh but it is roberto rossellini's the machine that kills bad people from 1952 and um I'm going to if you're if you watch this film, I'm going to encourage you to not read uh, Criterion's description because it gives some things away. Ugh. That uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, echo our friend Will Rimmers here, who is is very very good at uh, trying to let us know that sometimes the Criterion descriptions give away some pivotal plot twists here. Um, uh, this is a delightful film. It is charming. It is fun. It's, it is really joyous at times, but it's also got this macabre and grisly sensibility to it. Uh, it is the story of a, a small island village. Um, we, we open on some Americans coming to the village and they're getting ready to uh, purchase a castle. The castle also is happens to be the place where everyone buries their dead, <laughs> and uh, the the Americans are going to buy the castle and turn it into a resort for Americans because this is a place where American soldiers during World War II landed to help free the country from Mussolini, and uh, the, they know that Americans are going to want to come and bring their families and show the site of their great victory, and uh, they're going to, you know figure out some place to put the bodies of the dead. And uh, they come during this, this great festival for a saint. And uh, we meet a, uh, a photographer and he's, he's a poor man. And uh, uh, an old man comes into the photographer's shop and the old man tells him, you know, it's, it's really a shame that, uh, that this town has so many bad people in it because really, you know, it, the 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 world is 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 full of bad people and uh no one gets to get to heaven if you know you all just sit around and let the bad people do bad things but hey you know i i have the ability to give you this this power to stop bad people and uh we we begin to think that this this old man is actually the saint that has been celebrated this day and this photographer discovers that he, his camera now, if he takes a picture of a picture of the person, then that person will die. And the way they die is they suddenly are in the pose of the picture that they were in. So, uh, he takes a picture of this old man who was a, uh, he used to be a fascist and is still behaving fascistically toward the people in town. He's the night watchman. And when he takes the picture of the man making the fascist salute, suddenly he is frozen in the fascists making the fascist salute and um he's dead he's standing there they're frozen and uh immovable and he begins to realize that he can use this power to to stop bad people in his town 
and uh, it becomes this this satire on on uh, the the greediness of everyone in town, the the ways that um, all of these people are, the the ways that people are trying to to find. Um, find to get one leg up on the other they the the town gets a windfall and everyone starts trying to to jostle and to try to to get the money for their own their own projects and their own improvements an older woman dies and everybody's trying to subvert the subvert her will and so he starts realizing that he needs to kill more people in order to make the town a better place and uh, it becomes this very funny but also very dark uh, macabre bit of uh, grisliness uh, over the course of the film and there's some really great beats uh, the the practical effects are really fun I do have to say that the the ways in which they all as they die take on the pose of the photograph that he he takes are really absurd and hilarious uh a little a little disturbing at times too um and uh while the final moments are uh, a little uh goofy they are so they're just the perfect button to end the film on uh it's a a really great parable of greed and zealotry and self-righteousness uh, it's not one of Rossellini's best films, but it is really charming, and it's also fun to see him right after he had made uh, some of his war trilogy films, applying some of the neorealist techniques that he was using and move them into this kind of magical realist comedy. Uh, and uh, I think it's a, a really fun film. If you're looking for something that's kind of horror adjacent, uh, kind of more uh, magical fantasy that kind of fits into that that genre, I think this is a really fun film that uh, I think can fit into this month's uh, dark humor uh, as well. Oh, that sounds really fun. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I was charmed by it. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's one to, to definitely think about. Well, um, those are four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. And uh, I think four films that might be really fun to watch this October. Uh, that's Under the Blossoming Cherry Trees by Masahiro Shinoda. Spirits of the Dead by Federico Fellini, Louis Mal, and Roger Vadim. The Ghost of Yotsuya by Nobu Nakagawa. And The Machine That Kills Bad People by Roberto Rossellini. John, once again, thank you so much for joining me. I uh, always love to hear your thoughts on film, and uh, this has been a lot of fun to talk to you about these. Where can people find you online? So people can find me on Facebook and the Facebook groups, uh, uh, Criterion Reflections, uh, uh, your Facebook group, Criterion Now, um, a lot of the Criterion-focused um Criterion cast, etc. Those sorts of groups I'm I'm active in. Jonathan James is my is my handle, and then also on Letterboxd, also on at Jonathan James. And uh, you know I love talking movies, and so yeah, if you wanna if you wanna discuss Shinoda or um, you know any any sort of horror films over the next next month or two, absolutely reach out to me. Uh, I love I love discussing this stuff. Awesome, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. 
And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at Patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at Patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Once again, I have to thank all of our regular Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much for supporting the show. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, John and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss art house horror available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.